Good evening, and welcome to episode number two of the Night Growlers podcast. <laughs> Brought to you live from Selkirk College's 10th Street campus in Nelson, British Columbia. Tonight's podcast was programmed and created by the students of Creative Writing 101. It's a night class, and it's here to bring you the freshest voices and regularly amusement from where we live here in the Kootenays. Tonight's episode features live readings by Sahara Darwell, Sarah Beauchamp, and Haley Veers. And we'll finish up with an interactive choose-your-own-adventure-adventure set right here in Nelson, BC. Who will live? Who will die? And who will melt into the center of the earth? <laughs> Only you can make that decision. Our first reader tonight is going to be Sahara Darwell. Sahara Darwell was born in 1998 in Proctor, BC, and she now lives on the east shore of Kootenay Lake. She's always had a passion for storytelling and hopes to become a writer for animation. Currently, she's working on a series of short stories, experimenting in the genres of horror and science fiction. Thank you, Sahara, for joining us tonight. And you'll be reading from your work, Winter's Block? Yeah. A short story based on um, just fiction of a woman walking through the forest and encountering um, death as she walks through the woods. So I hope you enjoy it. The moon is full, and its light glistens softly off the winter snow as the wind blows gently through the dry branches of trees. I walk alone on the frozen earth, my feet bare and worn as I fluently move through the dense brush. My heart becomes light and satisfied as the snow crushes under my toes, each step full with more life than the next. I breathe the cool air and lift my face to greet it, for I know the chilled scent of roots and bark is there to greet me. The night is the clearest I've seen in a long time, and not even the densely crossing branches could hide the galaxies overhead. As I look, o as I look onward to the sky, I feel every part of my being lit aflame. It's like a million suns burning within me. I continue walking faster now, weaving myself between the trees like a dancer, my cloak draping elegantly on my shoulders and past my ankles, the silky fabrics flowing behind me like like a tail as I twirl. I would love to have a tail, and for tonight I shall pretend. Lifting the cloak with my hand, I twirl it to my side, dragging it back and forth just like a majestic wild dog. I have never felt more divine than in this moment. Moonbeams dance off my cheeks and ripple down onto my bosom, wrapping my body in the light as if a million silver butterflies were gracing me with their beauty. Oh, how I long for the evening when I can leave all humanity behind, and how I long for the bracing cold on my limbs, and how it adores me, wrapping me, wrapping my body in a strong sense of security. This world is like a milky candlelit dream that I hope I would never wake from. The moon is almost at its peak, rising higher in the sky, and I have stumbled upon the trail of actual wild dogs. The paw prints are large but delicate, and one after the other, they make a pathway at the bottom of a gully. I walk along the dented earth, following the prints, and to my surprise, they lead me to a small clearing. This part of the forest is a stranger to me, but it is wonderful, greeting me with bright new eyes. The naked trees were larger here, and wet moss covered their ancient trunks. The ground is damp, but not frozen, and the tiniest of springs flows lively from the cracks of rocks. I spun and danced on the moss-covered ground, my golden hair flowing like a stream. I could barely contain my happiness, 
the earth and I spun in unison, rotating around each other like otters in, in chase. The night goes on and the silver stars have rotated across the sky once more. I have fallen silent and still in the clearing, not knowing where to go or where I've been. I've become lost and disoriented. The shadows of trees grow long and lengthy and the ancient tree trunks all stand in the same manner, making it impossible to tell them apart. This part of the woods is unfamiliar, and perhaps it was a mistake to stray from the path to follow, the, to follow dog prints. It's just me and the trees, standing under the moonlight on this cold winter night, neither of us knowing the way home. I look for the gully, but my search comes to a halt as a gust of wind howls in my ears, and snowflakes take flight, blinding me in a flash of white. I shield my eyes with my arms, and when I lower them, a woman appears, standing upon large stones with purple crocuses budding at the base. Her body is thin and wrapped upon layers of silky gauzmer and lace. This woman is no stranger to me. I have met her many times in the past, her face always hidden beneath a veil. I know I am safe, and she will do me no harm, for she is far too kind. She extends her thin, pale arm and beckons me with her bony fingers. I approach her and kneel down beside the crocuses, daring not to take her hand. Wow, how bewitching. Thank you. Folks, that was Sahara Jarrow reading from her beautiful piece, A Winter's Walk. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, our second reader tonight is Sarah Beauchamp. Sarah Beauchamp is a writer and artist based out of none other than Nelson, British Columbia. Her work is an exploration of light and dark through the lens of personal experience. Living amongst other misfits, artists, and dreamers, Sarah and her husband, who I might mention is the podcast sound engineer, <laughs> prefer to live in a world where both time and space are merely a suggestion. Together, they explore the strange parts of their minds and imaginations without limitation. Tonight, Sarah is going to read from her poem, Intergenerational Gardening, which is forthcoming in this year's print edition of the Black Bear Review. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Lisa. Um, this is an incredibly personal poem for me, so I appreciate you letting me share it with you tonight. I come from a long line of complicated women, shamelessly flawed women, incapable of hiding from our own shadows. I often wonder what it must be like to love one of us. Unapologetically broken, we were never looking to be saved. I feel for anyone who has ever tried. Content in our own chaos, we are like a pack of lone wolves, disconnected by our wildly untamed emotions. Does not play well with others, should be a warning label that we carry. I often think about the lasting effects of trauma, what seeds have already been planted by previous generations. I think about the women in my family, the ways they tried to hide their pain and how secrets just make us all sick. I have seen trauma manifest itself in curious ways. Uncontrollable rage, unexplainable sadness, toxic relationships that led to violence. I have felt the pain of addiction and understand what it's like to struggle to maintain one's own sanity. I come from a long line of complicated women, but it's much more complex than that. I wrote this piece for my mother during a very complicated time in her life. This is Intergenerational Gardening by Sarah Beauchamp. You, dear mother, living in a garden planted with the tainted seeds of broken-spirited women, their tangled roots run deep. 
Will this be our legacy? A family of wildflowers, wilting from too much sun and not enough water. This garden is no place for you, for you have always been such a beautiful rose with thorns that pierce the skin. Intricately layered, I watch as your petals slowly fall to the ground, one by one, as pieces of you absorb back into our soil. Thank you. Folks, that was Sarah Beauchamp, reading Intergenerational Gardening. What an amazing poem. And you, folks, can take that home with you if you purchase a copy of the Black Bear Review, which will be available at our folks sometime in May. And you can also, when you pick up the copy of Black Bear Review, you'll also be able to read the full essay that's coming up next, written by Haley Veers. Haley grew up in Creston, BC, and moved to Nelson in 2018 to study ceramics at the Kootenai School of Arts. A writer before learning pottery, she hopes to use both ceramics and writing as positive influences on the world around her. Tonight, Haley will be reading from her essay, H's for Anxiety, which will be published in the infamous Black Bear Review very soon. Thank you for being with us tonight, Haley. I remember taking a workshop when I was 19. It was supposed to help me get a job because what I was then calling mild social anxiety was limiting my options. As part of the workshop, we had to take personality tests. For one, I was asked to pick a single word to describe myself that started with the first letter of my name. I picked hedgehog. Why? Because I explained. When they are threatened, they curl up in a spiky ball so people can't poke at them. I was trying to be sassy because I didn't appreciate being cross-examined into categories. In hindsight, I picked a very accurate description. I suppose there is also a parallel in that hedgehogs are actually difficult pets, despite a reputation for being adorable. I get called adorable a lot. When my twin was asked to describe me in one word, she said spiky. Another sister at one point gifted me an embroidered patch of a cactus. I've also been told I made a first impression as rude and strange. Frankly, I'd rather come across as spiky than adorable, and have accepted that I may never make a great or accurate first impression. I wish nature had evolved to make humans as efficient as hedgehogs, where my attempts at self-protection are as respected as being covered in spines. I don't remember ever not being anxious. So many stories of mental illness talk about a previous normal life and the process of getting that life back. If there was such a life for me, it's too long ago to say now, as a young adult, that was me before. I've spent years thinking other people's imbalance was my normal. I never thought disorder, and when I did, I thought it was a mild thing, like the common cold, not chronic illness. I didn't think a chart in a counseling office would add up to severe anxiety. Even now, I shy away from that phrase, saying, but I don't have panic attacks, but I don't need medication, but I could do all these things that make me anxious and just don't want to. I wonder where I got the idea that something could only be a problem if it shut down my whole life or sent me to the hospital. By that definition, I have never been truly ill, except for one fractured collarbone, stitches in my lip, and the occasional stomach flu. Remarkably healthy if you only think in terms of the obvious and physical. Worse than this idea of illness is the idea that it's somehow more noble to suffer, that if I don't push myself to the point of an anxiety attack, then I'm not trying my hardest, that I have to hit absolute rock bottom before I can justify not reaching the stars. My rock bottom has been crying collapsed in a pile of laundry at three in the afternoon, or in the bathroom sink at three in the morning. And I've told myself it's not deep enough because I only wanted to cry and not kill myself. I've trained myself not to see my limits and not to try pushing them. I feel free, but I'm pacing a cage and telling myself I'm lucky because it's larger than others. I don't remember ever crying from joy, despite reading once that you can cry from any emotion. 
I've also read that there are chemical differences between happy tears and sad ones. I usually cry from anxiety and often enough that I have started gathering fun facts on being miserable. In writing workshops, I have learned to make characters cry sparingly since it supposedly releases tension. In real life, it's supposed to release a bunch of hormones that make you feel better afterwards. Personally, all I feel is a downward spiral. I usually end up with red eyes, a sick headache, and a deep desire to be home in bed. I've cried in front of every teacher I've ever had, all of my friends, most of my employers, and counsel with strangers. I've told people that it doesn't matter if I cry in public because no one notices unless you make eye contact. There's no shame in crying for me anymore. I'm only annoyed because I have yet to find a way to stop crying on command. I like to think if I was an actor, I'd learn to start crying on command and turn the bane of my existence into a talent. I remember wondering what would be left if I suddenly had perfect mental health. What would be me and would I recognize myself? My fadeaway posture unfolded if my voice was louder. If my nail-picked acne scars healed over, would I be the same person? If I could just walk in somewhere with a resume and ask for a job, would my life be all the same? If the nasty little gremlin in my head shut up, who would be left speaking? Every time I manage to do something that most people can manage well enough, without overthinking or anxiety attacks, I feel like I'm wearing a facade. Like it's not the real me who did it. I just stuffed down all the undesirable things for five minutes and held myself together with a thin veneer of nice clothes and makeup. But if that's not me, and neither is the crumpled, crying gremlin, then who is? I remember my twins saying that the people we are now would have been cool in high school. I don't know if that's true, but I do wonder what younger me would think if I traveled back in time. At eight, I wanted to learn ballet. At 11, I wanted to be a famous writer, ideally before 18. At 18, I wanted to go to film school and make movies. I have done none of those things. At 22, my longest held job remains working as a dishwasher. I was good at it. I still can't do ballet or make a movie, and I aged out of being a teen prodigy. But I am still writing, could still go to film school, and in place of ballet, have learned some cool tricks with a hula hoop. I don't know why I have this vision that there is an ideal version of me, and every other period of my life is either uphill or downhill from there. I don't know why I think that ideal version has to happen while I'm young. I wonder if younger me would see my slower pace as failure, or accept my present view that maybe not everything has to be achieved before adulthood. I remember my family used to call us youngest three the littles. They don't anymore, not now that my little brother can bench press two of me, now that my twin is an entrepreneur who rocks PowerPoint presentations and go get him heels. It's just me who gets called little now. Somehow, my ranking among my siblings has slipped down from fourth eldest to sixth largest. Put the six of us in a lineup, and I wouldn't be surprised if strangers guessed that I was, in fact, the youngest. I'm not even short, but I forget this around my family, none of whom I ever outgrew in either height or weight. I used to get shoes and clothes that were a size too large, but when I grew into them, not until my late teens did I realize I wasn't getting any bigger and half my closet didn't fit. I keep forgetting that just because I've stopped growing doesn't mean I've stopped, period. Lately, I'm surprised to look back and see my childhood receding further and further away, and then look forward and see an entire lifetime as an adult still ahead. In some ways, I feel anxiety is just another thing that doesn't fit anymore, only instead of being too large, it's too small. I'm slowly realizing that at some point, I'll have to stop being a little one and grow up.
Folks, that was Haley Rear's reading from H is Anxiety. As you can tell, the room is full of talent tonight. And we have more talent coming up. Moving on to Act 2, it's time for dun, 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 some Choose Your Own Adventure. <laughs> tonight, three people from our live audience will be journeying to the heart of Weirdo Nelson, the charming eclectic town we live in, but each reader will be taking different pathways. A team of writers... Ali Butts, Dakota May, Molly Naduke, and Lily Roy have compiled a sweet sequence of possible journeys through their short story titled Downtown Without a Phone. Their story is modeled on the popular Choose Your Own Adventure series from the 80s and 90s. These are books that were written from a second-person point of view, with the reader assuming the role of the protagonist in making choices that determine the main character's actions and plots and outcome. Usually they took place in the fantasy realm, but here we are, nearly half a century later, in the Kootenays, adapting it to our charming locale. Folks, are you ready? Yeah! <laughs> All right. Good evening, everyone. And we are here with our first contestant, Judy. Judy, it's 9 p.m. at night. You're standing at the bus stop on Baker Street, downtown Nelson. You grab your phone out of your pocket and murmur to yourself, shit, it's dead. Your friend was supposed to meet you by now. You're unsure if she's still on her way. Meanwhile, the bus that you would take to journey home pulls up and at the same time, you notice this alluring figure standing in front of a sparkling silver Audi. You feel magnetized over to the virtuous and mysterious figure. As you approach his dark shadow, a deep, husky voice offers you a ride. Now, which of these three options do you choose? One, you go to the bar to charge your phone so you can contact your friend. Two, you take the bus home. And three, you chance accepting a ride from this chivalrous stranger. Don't pick a ride, no. <laughs> Do it. Oh, I think I'm going to go to the bar and charge my phone. Oh. <laughs> Hi, Judy. So you've decided to go to the bar to charge your phone so you can contact your friend. You walk into the bar, and it's like nothing special. The same bad decor since you were 15, and it seemed cool to sneak into a bar. Then, like a meerkat, you scan the bar from one side to the other. No sign of the ex-boyfriend or a lazy creative type, uh, as far as you know. Now for a power outlet. But before you can locate a suitable power source, a basket of fries comes flying out of the darkness and expels its contents in your hair. Collateral damage, honey, hollers a voice, and you realize that you had taken for to be drunken dancers at the back of the room is actually a bar fight. Some kind of greaser and socks thing by the looks of it. More projectiles are flying your way. <laughs> Up from behind the bar, like some humanoid African rodent, pops the head of coarse red hair like the bristles of a broom and a dopey freckled face. Carl, the undiscovered artistic genius. Hey, he shouts, I'm so glad you came in tonight. There's something I gotta show you. And then he walks along the bar, horribly miming like he's going down a set of stairs by bending his knees a little lower each step of the way until he's out of sight. When he doesn't reappear, you lean on the bar and check to see if that, see that in fact, there is a staircase there. Old wooden plank steps descending from a trapdoor, usually hidden by a rubber stress relief mat. A napkin drenched in ketchup, you hope, thwacks you unexpectedly and slides down the back of your neck. Do you follow Carl down the staircase or follow your base urges and hurl the novelty leprechaun decor at the rat-faced socialite who clocked you with a napkin? Which do you choose? Join the bar fight or follow Carl? Bar fight, bar 
<laughs> I gotta get back at that person who threw that thing. I'm going in the bar fight. <laughs> <laughs> you join the bar fight. With a little jolt of excitement you had not been expecting, you hurled the styrofoam leprechaun ornament from the bar into the general hubbub churning around you. Like a rainbow, it arcs and comes down in triumphed on the head of a pale skinny girl in what looks like a prom dress. A pimply redneck in head-to-toe denim grabs you by the front of your coat and throws you into the tangled mass of 20-somethings. You kick and squirm, your limbs make contact, you realize you're smiling. You haven't been this exhilarated since you got swept up in the G8 summit riots back in 2010 when you helped some anarchists smash a Starbucks window with the Canada, the Canada Post box. <laughs> Don't <laughs> uh, eventually, with some bruises along the way, uh, you lay the, with some bruises along the way, you find yourself backed with the gorgeous, athletic-looking woman on the top of the bar. Around you lays the masses, knocking out and littering the shamrock decor. You drop the chair you'd been holding like a battle axe and look at your comrades in arms. She looks at you, sweaty and grinning. Uh, she introduces introduces herself as Amazonia and says, would you be interested in trying out for our independent theatrical wrestling circuit? I really think you've got what it takes. And the rest of it is history. You are now an internationally renowned independent amateur theatrical wrestler and a burlesque dancer. Congratulations. <laughs> well, folks, we're back. And now that Judy is off to become an internationally renowned independent amateur theoretical wrestler and burlesque dancer, we have Chantel here. Chantel, you can choose between two options. One, you can take the bus home. Or two, chance accepting a ride from this chivalrous stranger. Mm. Stranger, 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 stranger. looking for us. Yes, I'm definitely going for the stranger. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Chantel, <clears throat> you took a chance on the chivalrous stranger. Could I offer you a ride somewhere, darling? The man asks, appearing out of the shadows, presenting his captivating features and stylish attire. Oh, hi. Um, um, well, if it's not too far out of your way, you reply, feeling slightly flushed. Wherever you need to go, I'll get you there, he answers as he opens the passenger door, motioning with his lavish left arm for you to get in. My name's Charlie, he says. Once you're seated in the car, a creeping sensation of worry begins to tickle your gut. Yet all at once, when Charlie's in the driver's seat, the tickle dissolves into a soothing and comfortable sensation. Sit tight, little darling. He turns the car on, shifts into gear, and is gliding down Baker Street. All the street lights timed perfectly with his departure. The interior of his car is smooth black leather, and you're picking up a woody amber scent mixed with rosemary, you guessed. Charlie is driving toward the Crescent Valley. As it dawns on you, you had not yet told him where you lived. Where are we going, you ask. Now hear this, darling. I know this may sound a little strange to you, but I've actually been aware of you for quite some time now. He pauses, giving you a genuine look of trust. You're captivated by his presence, enthralled by this interaction. He continues, I have actually appeared tonight to make you an offer. You see, little darling, I am part of a different community here on this planet. And we live, well, we live inside the Earth. We live at a higher dimension than most of humanity operates on, and we don't need food or water or sunlight. As a matter of fact, we live off the magma produced inside the core. It is all we need. Now look, I understand this can be a lot to digest. The facts are, 
We've been analyzing you for some time now, and you are ready to be initiated into our civilization. The real answer lies within you. So if you decide this isn't the path for you, I will gladly drop you off at home, and you won't remember anything of this exchange when you wake in the morning. Or you can choose to come with me and begin living a new life. What do you choose? Ooh. You know what? <laughs> home seems really, really nice right now. <laughs> the magma and everything. I feel like a, I'm going for the center of the earth. <laughs> I'll do it, you know? Yeah, no. You're going no, for the magma? I don't know. Yes. <laughs> I'm going for the center of the earth, yes, for a newer existence. You join the stranger and start on a new life adventure. You feel like you can really trust Charlie. He has a calming presence that makes you want to stick around. His story does seem outlandish, but this whole night has been crazy, so why not just jump in? Charlie, I'll go with you. That sounds great. He smiles at you. Let's go. He starts driving faster and faster until everything is a blur outside of the car. Then the inside of the car starts to blur. The car then morphs into a warm red orb, digging into the earth until you reach bliss. <laughs> Hi, Shayna. You're our last contestant tonight, so I'll read you the setting once more. You're standing at the bus stop on Baker Street. It's 9 p.m. at night, downtown. You grab your phone out of your pocket and murmur to yourself, shit, it's dead. Your friend was supposed to meet you by now. You're unsure if she's still on her way. Meanwhile, the bus you would take to journey home pulls up, and at the same time, you notice this alluring figure standing in front of you, in front of a sparkling silver Audi. You feel magnetized over to the virtuous and mysterious figure. As you approach his dark shadow, a deep husky voice offers to give you a ride. Right now, your only choice is to take the bus home. <laughs> take the bus home. <laughs> the accordion door of the bus slowly opens with an ominous creak. You're startled by a low voice. Good evening, ma'am. Glancing up, you catch sight of a man's face turned into the shadows. You watch dirty fingers glide from the clutch steering wheel to the manual bus fare unit. Giving it a light tap, he states, 225. You give him a curt nod as you place your change in the machine. Reaching up, you swiftly grab hold of a handle as the bus is instantly catapulted forward. A feeling of unease washes over you as you look around and register that you're the only one on this bus. You try and distract yourself by looking out the windows, but it's too dark to see anything. Suddenly, the bus comes to a halt. You gasp as the driver turns to you, finally showing his face. Scratches run the length from scalp to chin, and his shirt is torn. Here's your stop, he sneers. Squinting, you look out the window again. Sorry, sir. My stop is still a few away. If I, got if I get off here, I'd have to walk through a dark forested path. You feel his gaze raking you from head to toe. There's a detour in place. It's either get off here or take the long way with me tonight. I'll take the forest. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing there's absolutely no way you'd spend another second alone with him, you tighten your jacket collar and swiftly exit down the stairs. The bus rolls off with a groan, momentarily warming your skin with hot exhaust. Feeling your throat constrict, you look around realizing it's dark, like really dark. If you had just taken the time to charge your phone, you could have used that as a flashlight. What's that phrase that everyone always says? Hindsight is twenty-twenty. You're about halfway into the walk when a tingling of an awareness zips up your spine. Picking up your pace, you begin to walk faster, scanning the path ahead. That's when you hear the unmistakable crunch of footsteps behind you. 
Startled, you spin around. Hello? Who's there? Seeing no one, panic sets in and you begin to run. This is your biggest mistake. Catching your foot on an exposed route, you feel time slow. As you go down, your life memories flood through your thoughts like a bad commercial on fast forward. Your head hits a boulder with a resonating crack. Before darkness overtakes you, you're left wondering why you didn't just stay on that damn bus. <laughs> Sorry, Shane. Sorry. Aww. You died. <laughs> That's a wrap for tonight. We'd like to thank everyone who worked on tonight's episode. Sarah Beauchamp, Ali Butts, Sahara Darwell, Dakota May, Molly Nee Duke, Lily Roy, Haley Veers, and the audience members who participated in the Choose Your Own Adventure adventure. Woo-hoo. We're back in three weeks for more live readings and a special broadcast of Kootenai Reads in which four readers will champion a book that inspired them, leaving only one winner standing. Until then, be well and read voraciously. Yay! Yay.